This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Our speaker today is Stephen Tweedell. Uh, he's going to be talking about meta-ethics. I have to explain what that is. Meta-ethics and progressive politics. The strongest reasons that count for or against any policy are always moral reasons. That's quote-unquote. Wrote philosophy student Stephen Tweedell at the beginning of, his, of a six-part blog series on developing an ethical framework for contemporary progressive politics. In this talk, Stephen will summarize his arguments, covering the ideas of John Rawls, T.M. Scullion, Elizabeth Anderson, and Martha Nussbaum. Stephen Tweedell is a philosophy student at Simon Fraser University and blogs about politics and philosophy at Popcorn Machine. Please welcome Stephen. Stephen, thank you. Hi, thanks. Uh, so if I say meta-ethics, uh, raise your hand if you know what that is. Okay, a few people. Uh, so uh, ethics or uh, moral philosophy, the terms are normally used interchangeably, uh, is the area of philosophy concerned with uh, what to do and how to live. So ethics is the field of philosophy concerned with this, the study of what to do, how to live. And uh, ethics is normally divided into three main areas, uh, applied, normative, and meta-ethics. So applied ethics would be the study of uh, ethics in the context of particular types of case and uh, or, or moral situation. Normative ethics, in normative ethics, try to generalize over a number of uh, issues or types of case to come up with principles that explain our judgments about those particular cases. So this would be where we talk about uh, theories like utilitarianism or deontology, uh, is the thing that explains uh, the rightness of an action in a, in a given case is it the fact that it would uh, performing that action would tend to maximize overall happiness uh, or is it because that action would be required by some fundamental duty or, or uh, that we have or a right that we must respect and uh, metaethics is about the ultimate foundations of morality so are any of our moral judgments true? If so, what makes them true? How do we find out which moral judgments are true? So that is, uh, that is meta-ethics. And what I mean by uh, progressive politics in the progressive politics part of meta-ethics and progressive politics, in the, in the blog series, I'm mostly talking about sort of a, a broadly left-wing or social democratic uh, left-liberal politics, but it could be interpreted uh, more broadly to, uh, you know, cover the, the kinds of commitments that appear in the BC Humanist Associations, the Amsterdam Declaration that the BC Humanists have adopted as their uh, definition. Uh, now, all the points in the Amsterdam Declaration are, uh, these are all ethical claims. So, point one, for example, affirming the worth, dignity, and autonomy of the individual the right of every human being to the greatest possible freedom compatible with the rights of others, this is an ethical claim. It seems to 
commit one to some kind of critical or progressive politics, not accepting things as they are, but uh, having a critical attitude towards things uh, as they are, and uh, and wanting to use uh, reason uh, and uh, uh, to to uh, make things better. So what got me thinking about this topic originally was a piece on uh, poverty eradication that I read in the Georgia Strait that uh, seemed to lean very heavily on uh, sort of pragmatic arguments. Uh, uh, so an example of a pragmatic argument being that the level of poverty in society uh, comes with a, a price tag attached. Uh, there, there are costs to the um, health impacts of, of uh, poverty, for example, uh, or there's untapped economic potential and uh, that's being wasted. But it seems to me that pretty much by definition, this is leaving out the, the strongest reasons for dealing with poverty. Those are going to be moral reasons. Uh, moral reasons and ethics are usually understood as reasons that override all pragmatic considerations. They provide framework in which we can pursue our, our personal aims, our, pursue our legitimate uh, self-interest, but we have, to, uh, we have to respect the demands of, of morality first. Uh, not treat it as a, uh, a luxury to be dealt with later. So, I mean, yes, and you can see why this would be the case. Imagine if moral reasons were consistently treated as a, uh, a luxury or the demands of morality were treated as a luxury to be dealt with after the pragmatic reasons for action have uh, run out. So suppose I could uh, advance my career by killing someone. If morality is a luxury, then it seems like I can decide whether to kill someone before I think about whether that would be moral or not. But it seems like if I'm thinking about ways to advance my career, morality should actually take killing people off the table to begin with. I start my deliberations having already ruled out uh, that it doesn't come up, the fact that it would help me to kill someone because it's immoral. So why is it fashionable to talk as though morality is a kind of luxury? Focus on pragmatic arguments instead. One of the most important reasons is that people are more comfortable dealing with disagreement about strictly practical issues than disagreement about moral issues. And one reason for this is people learn scientific methods and, and social scientific methods in school uh, and retain enough of this learning to navigate and participate in disagreements about uh, the evidential basis for various policies. What is, what is the, the likely effect of you know, policy A, B, or C going to be? And, uh, and will it achieve our aims? But there's not necessarily instruction about methods of ethics. In some curriculums, they treat moral judgment or the idea of uh, systematic thinking about ethics as a conceptual impossibility. So there was a, a piece by the philosopher Justin McBrayer where he pointed out that, um, in the New York Times, pointing out that in the uh, Common Core curriculum, the, uh, the definition of a fact that's used makes the idea of a moral fact a conceptual impossibility, like a five-sided triangle or a married bachelor. Because according to the, uh, the definition of a fact, a fact is something that could, could be verified uh, empirically. 
which is not the, not the definition that normally used in philosophy these days, uh, where a fact is treated as something that is uh, something that is the case, whether or not it can be known. So, nevertheless, a lot of people find it hard to shake the idea that there are some moral facts. Maybe genocide is wrong, or you shouldn't torture babies for fun. Whatever else might be true, it seems that it seems hard to shake the idea that, that uh, those claims are true. Uh, even people who say that morality is a matter of individual taste often find themselves unable to avoid appealing to certain uh, fundamental moral intuitions. So in my blog, I use the example of a column by Shadi Hamid, is a, a Brookings Institution fellow. Uh, and he defends Donald Trump. The column was written, I guess, a year and a half ago. I don't know if he would still be defending Donald Trump. Uh, but he says uh, that opponents of Trump have only moral criticisms to give of Trump. And moral criticisms are, he says, um, by way of offering a, purporting to offer a conceptual truth, they're strictly subjective. But Trump was democratically elected. So, and that's objectively true. So democratic process trumps, so to speak, subjective moral feelings. So Democrats are wrong to criticize Trump. But do you see the problem with that? He's purporting to make an argument unencumbered by delusions of morality. But uh, he's sort of just sort of putting on this front of hard-nosed moral skepticism to give cover to an incredibly controversial moral claim, which is that if you are voted into office, you can do whatever you want. So it, it turns out that he's unable to, to go about navigating the issues of contemporary American politics without using moral language, without making moral judgments. So, and I think this is generally true, that you can't dispense with moral thought to make political arguments. So it's better that moral claims that a political argument depends on are articulated clearly and openly uh, the people who are making moral judgments say that that's what they're doing, and that those of us who have to, who are on the receiving ends of those arguments, uh, are able to uh, uh, evaluate the the moral claims that are being uh, made. Still, there might be kind of the feeling, why bother with that if there are no moral facts? Uh, it might be that moral claims are indispensable, but all of them are false. Would it be that big a surprise if political life turned out to be full of lies? Maybe not. So it's not enough to show that moral claims are indispensable. It has to be shown that some moral claims could be true. Now, if we find moral claims indispensable, if we find ourselves unable to avoid acting as if there are some true moral claims, then we have at least one good reason to think that some moral claims are true. Some, in this case, meaning at least one. So do we have better reason to think that this is not the case, that there are no true moral judgments? So uh, a very popular reason for thinking that there are no moral facts is the thought that there could only be moral facts if moral facts were handed down by God. And this idea is uh, sometimes called divine command theory, sometimes called theological voluntarism. Though theological voluntarism usually extends across other normative domains or, or other uh, metaphysical domains and would include the, the idea that God could make it the case that there are five-sided triangles. So if God doesn't exist, uh, then there are no uh, divine decrees, 
and therefore there would be no moral facts. So the, the slogan, if God is dead, everything is permitted, is, is uh, uh, sometimes uh, this has turned into an argument for the existence of God, the idea that, and I'll test the batteries by saying, if God is dead, everything is permitted. So the, there's the so-called moral argument for theism, and it goes like this. Uh, plainly, there are moral facts. There could only be moral facts if God exists, therefore God exists. But it's more common, I think, to see uh, the argument that moral facts could only exist if God exists, and God does not exist, so moral facts does not exist. And uh, this is an example of the uh, slogan, uh, one man's modus ponens is another man's modus tollens. So the problem with this argument, the idea that skepticism about the existence of God calls the, the possibility of moral truth into question, the, the problem is divine command theorists don't really have a satisfactory account of how the existence of God could have any bearing on the existence of moral facts. It seems to me that the existence of God is uh, completely irrelevant. It's a metaphysical question, not an ethical question. If God turned out to exist, that would give us no more reason to believe that moral facts exist than we already have. And if God turned out not to exist, that would give us no less reason to believe that moral facts exist. It's just beside the point. And so the difficulties with divine command theory are, uh, I cite arguments by Stephen Darwall on, on the blog, and the basic idea is this. If one suggestion for how God might make it the case that there are moral facts is that he has the ability to punish people who transgress his will, but that is, you know, avoiding punishment is not itself a moral reason for doing or not doing anything. It's a, uh, it's a prudential question. I swerve to avoid tripping over a hole in the sidewalk not because that's, that's morally required, but just because I don't want to fall on my face. And it seems like the threat of divine retribution is, is similar to that. It's not a, a wanting to avoid punishment is not a moral reason. A moral reason for doing something is, is doing that thing because it is morally required. The, another possibility is that God has authority to issue decrees, and maybe that's why God could make it the case that are, there are moral facts, and if there's no authority, then there's, if there's no divine authority, then there are no moral facts. But the problem there is that uh, authority is itself a moral concept. It presupposes that these are commands that ought to be followed. So if God makes it the case that there are moral facts because the, he has the authority to issue commands, then there is already at least one moral fact uh, that exists independently of God's will, and if there can be at least one, then there can be more than one. So why not say that all the other moral facts are independent of God's will? And in fact, even in uh, uh, the Christian tradition, for example, this is, this is a common view. Uh, many theologians have argued that the commands of God are based on an independent, perhaps necessary standard of morality that we might pay attention to what God says because he has perfect knowledge of moral truth, not because he is the one who, uh, from whom the moral truth actually originates. So divine command theory doesn't seem to provide an explanation of uh, where moral facts come from after all, 
So if atheism is true, then we have no particular reason to doubt that, uh, that there are moral facts. So in order to make the case for progressive policy, or indeed for any kind of policy, it could be the most reactionary policy in the world, we have to make a moral case. And in order to make a moral case, you have to confront moral nihilism, the idea that there are no moral facts. So the first step would be, or my first step, is being to establish a presumption in favor of moral truth. And that that presumption is established by noting that uh, we tend to think, talk, and act as though there are moral truths. Skepticism about moral truth turns out not to be something that uh, we can actually live out in our lives personally or as members of a political community. And this skepticism is further undermined because we see that the common argument cited as justification for skepticism is unsound. So if the independence of moral truth, if moral truth is independent of the divine will, then it seems like the, the content of morality should be knowable independently of uh, any metaphysical truths about the existence of a, a supernatural being. If moral truth is accessible to anyone, it should be accessible to everyone. So people who are religious and people who are non-religious are peers in the process of uh, moral inquiry. Having a, a, a sacred text does, doesn't give one any special uh, moral insight. So uh, another objection, historically popular objection, to the idea of moral facts is that if there were moral facts, they would have to be metaphysically or epistemologically strange or uh, queer is the word that, that J.L. Mackey uses in his influential argument for this. And so the worry is basically if, if divine commands uh, or if moral facts are not divine commands, uh, what are they? Where do they come from and how do we know about them? And why do we get them wrong so much of the time? In order to be confident in the possibility of progress, we need to, to start to be able to answer those questions as well, not just cast doubt on skepticism. So kind of my aim in, uh, in, in this blog series is to, uh, to start to develop a, a response, maybe a tentative response, but uh, a way that those important questions can be answered. Now, the thing that supposedly makes moral facts objectionably strange to philosophers like J.L. Mackey is that they are normative or action-guiding. They tell us what to do. Uh, just knowing about a moral fact gives us a reason to, to do something or, or not to do something. This property of moral facts, the fact that they're normative, is what uh, solves the underdetermination problem in public policy. The, the, the problem where uh, just having a bunch of evidence about the likely consequences of various policies doesn't actually settle the question of what policy we ought to pursue. So lately, ethicists uh, are coming to treat morality as a special case of the broader phenomenon of normativity. The moral facts are not the only kind of normative facts. Facts about logical inference and mathematics are also, uh, also give us reasons to act in certain ways, uh, to reach a particular conclusion from a set of premises, or, or uh, to do it in a particular way. 
Now, skeptics about moral truth tend to be realists about logical and mathematical truths. After all, they purport to base their denial of the existence of moral truth on sound logical reasoning. But if there's no problem with normative facts generally, then it's not clear why there would be a problem with moral facts specifically, because Mackey's argument supposes that there is, there is some problem with moral facts specifically, but I don't think he really spells it out. So if we're comfortable with the existence of mathematical facts and, and, and facts about, uh, about logical rules, then, then we should feel a little more at ease with the idea that this uh, special class of normative facts uh, that, that are moral facts. Now, the, the kinship between normative facts or the, the different kinds of normative facts provides a clue to uh, some of the questions posed earlier, like how do we know about, how could we know about moral facts if there are such facts? And what are they? Where do they come from if not from God? Well, in, uh, I suppose, uh, T.M. Scanlon would be the one to cite here, arguing that uh, normative facts are primitive in the sense that they're not reducible to or true in virtue of some more basic set of uh, non-normative facts. There's no sense in asking what kind of thing normative facts are or where such things come from. Mathematical facts are founded upon other mathematical facts and moral facts are founded upon other moral facts. So this, uh, this characterization of normative facts as primitive or basic fits in with the, the concept of, uh, of morality that, uh, that Stephen Darwall was using that I, I referred to earlier in his argument against divine command theory. If we could show that there was a non-normative foundation for morality, that wouldn't be explaining the existence of moral facts. It would be showing that moral facts are, in, are actually some other kind of, uh, of fact. So there's also a suggestion here of how we can know what the moral facts are and why we are frequently mistaken in our judgments of uh, what is true. So what are, what are some methods that we can use to, to apprehend moral facts? One influential suggestion is uh, the uh, so-called method of reflective equilibrium. So this idea of uh, reflective equilibrium, the, the term was coined by John Rawls, but the, the basic idea comes from uh, Nelson Goodman, who was uh, proposing how we come to know rules of logical inference, if not from, uh, I mean, they're, they're not really something you can uh, observe uh, or, or directly or test scientifically. So Goodman proposed that we, we justify principles of logical inference by trying to derive general principles from our judgments about the strength or validity of particular inferences. And we take these general principles and then apply them to new cases where we don't have, uh, our judgments aren't necessarily settled, uh, and uh, apply them uh, uh, to new cases to see if they generate conclusions that seem to match our, our judgments in those cases. And sometimes we'll find that the, the principle generates the, the, uh, the same conclusion as, as we judge in the particular case, and then sometimes a conflict might arise. We might say that the principle predicts uh, that we should, uh, we should find the, the inference 
justified, but we, we actually don't in that case. And so we, in that case, we should either revise the judgment in, in the particular case in light of the general principles we'd, uh, uh, we'd uh, derive to begin with, uh, or we might derive or change the uh, general principles and uh, test them against another set of cases. And this process goes back and forth until we reach a state where our judgments in every particular case matches the general principles that, uh, that we're, uh, we're working with. At that point, uh, we're uh, in a state of reflective equilibrium. And the, the end point there is hypothetical because there's always new cases. But by engaging in this process and kind of incrementally uh, getting, getting closer to uh, this hypothetical uh, endpoint, we can justify our beliefs about uh, what count as good rules of logical inference. So yeah, we can make progress. Our belief about what counts as a good inference and why are justified in proportion to the progress we've achieved. So Rawls applies this method to morality and uh, specifically to the domain of uh, social or distributive justice. And, uh, and similarly, uh, in this process, we start with uh, moral judgments where we have a, a high degree of confidence under good conditions for making that kind of judgment. And uh, so when we're refreshed and cool-headed rather than tired and upset, uh, perhaps when we're removed from the situation rather than having an, an immediate personal stake in it, and we come up with a set of supporting principles that would explain those judgments, and then test those principles against different cases, checking whether they yield judgments that we're prepared to endorse on reflection, and then revising either the principles or the judgments as appropriate. And through this process, we should be able to reach a, uh, a stable conception of ju what justice requires that is still open to revision, but which is, seems to hold up uh, across a, a, a wide range of, uh, of cases. So Rawls draws an analogy between this and uh, well, he describes it as in engaging in this kind of theorizing or this pursuit of reflective equilibrium we're describing our moral capacity, and he appeals to this idea of something like a, a universal grammar. He references Chomsky's idea of a, of a universal grammar, which I gather at that time was, uh, this would have been the late 60s, was very in vogue. So in, through this process, we might end up with a, uh, a fully developed conception of justice, which is very surprising considering where, uh, where we began. And in Rawls' case, case it, uh, it was surprising in some respects. He ended up endorsing a, uh, a set of uh, basic liberties as required by justice and a requirement of fair equality of opportunity. And, uh, but then he also arrived at the, an extremely egalitarian principle uh, for, the, for the distribution of income and wealth, which uh, proved to be uh, very controversial, but uh, which I find uh, kind of plausible. So knowledge is uh, a common definition used in philosophy is justified true belief. So if we're justified in believing that 
principles and judgments we hold in reflective equilibrium are true, and those principles are true, then it's fair to say that the method of reflective equilibrium is a method for acquiring moral knowledge. And note that religious belief plays no role in this method, so it should be appealing from a, uh, from a secular perspective, uh, but it should also be appealing to a lot of people who do hold uh, religious beliefs. A lot of religious ethicists claim that there is kind of moral sense that people have. Uh, St. Paul said morality was written in our hearts. Aquinas thought that we could, even though uh, moral law was created by God, it was something that could be apprehended by reason without the aid of sacred texts, didn't depend on divine revelation. So reflective equilibrium can explain how it was, morality was written in our hearts and how reason can be used to, to discern uh, moral truth. Now I realize I am running up against the, uh, my time limit here and I have a ways to go. So uh, I would actually like to skip over a number of uh, steps in the argument and come to sort of a, a concluding bit for which I have a handout, which I think might spark uh, some discussion. So there's a handout on 10, uh, 10 central human capabilities that created by, uh, uh, a list created by the philosopher Martha Nussbaum. So at the end of this, uh, this, this process on, of uh, thinking about what we can sustain in, in reflective equilibrium. So we're responding to normative reasons. This is the is distinctive human capacity, which seems as good as any, as the basis for establishing the, the, uh, what the value of, uh, of uh, persons is and, and how that, that value is uh, uh, or ought to be respected in uh, public policy, uh, public life. So uh, capabilities in, in Nussbaum's theory are defined as effective freedoms or real opportunities to achieve functionings or kinds of beings and doings that one has reason to value. And, uh, and this is a, a list of, uh, of 10 uh, such effective freedoms that must be guaranteed to all if a society is to be minimally just. It must be guaranteed to all up to a sort of a minimum standard of justice. And the list has been controversial. Uh, some think that it is, uh, in a liberal society, it's taking too strong a position on what uh, the, the good life is, where people should, um, there's too much disagreement about what that is for, the, for these to be requirements of basic justice. Others have their own ideas of, of uh, things that ought to be added as capabilities or, or, or fundamental capabilities or uh, things that ought to be subtracted. And uh, so I would be interested in uh, what, uh, what people think of as uh, uh, the... the uh, so notably, this is all, uh, this list is compiled without reference to the purposes of a supreme being. It's justified by reference to the outcome of, the, of this process of reflective equilibrium. And it seems to be uh, uh, quite, uh, quite a, a, a robust... Uh, set of, uh, of uh, requirements that we can build uh, uh, a progressive policy around. So I guess maybe I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm running up against the time limit. So 
Thank you, Stephen. My goodness. Thank you.